Jesus, you are our everything. Oh, I pray that we would not take your goodness for granted. I pray that we would just be so deeply in love with you because of all that you have done for us. I pray as we come to your word now, please teach us, please guide us, please help us to understand who you are, what you did, and what you are doing. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The word audacious, it often has a negative connotation. It can mean to be brash, uh, brazen, presumptuous, right? Like, how could he possibly have the audacity to do that? So we often think of it in a negative way. But here's the thing. It's not always a pejorative term. It can mean to be bold, to be courageous, to be fearless, This morning, what I want us to do as we are here in the the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, I want us to look at two men, two individuals whose lives were changed because of the audacious, recklessly bold faith of some individuals. So let's let's jump into it with no further ado. Mark chapter 1, I hope you're with me, verse 40 and, and covering into chapter 2. So let me just give you the first point. It is this, the unclean becomes, became clean. Am I echoing? Okay. Okay. I would mute everything but me. Okay. I'm kind of glad to hear that you guys thought I was echoing too because my mind's a really scary place. <laughs> And so sometimes I'm just thinking this stuff, and it's probably just me, and, and so anyway. Uh, would it be easier for us just to use this mic, or are we good? I'll take that as silence means good. We're good. No, that's good. Are we okay? Okay. What am I on? This one or this one? I'm sorry? Thank you. Oh, you meant just about the mic? Okay. Okay. We're good. Okay, I did. I already mentioned my mind's a scary place, right? So, let me see. Okay, here we go. The unclean became clean. That's my first point. Hope you're with me on that one. So, I'm going to try to get myself back under control here. I want you to think about leprosy. In the ancient world, leprosy was the most dreaded of all diseases. The fear of contamination was so great that no one dared even go near anyone who suffered from that disease. In fact, one ancient rabbi said this. He said, when I see lepers, I throw stones, stones at them lest they come near me. Well, I guess he wasn't real compassionate, but it was because of the fear that they had that this disease was so contagious. Another rabbi said this. He said, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leper had walked. That's how much they feared the contagion of leprosy. So this man now, this man that we're going to look at here, he came to Jesus, but know this, he was an outcast in every sense of the word. 
The only ones who even dared get close to him would have been other lepers, people suffering from the same disease. Even his family and friends would not have been able to or dared to approach him if they were going to provide even the most basic of necessities for him, such as food or clothing, which they would have had to have done because a leper could not do anything to earn an income or to provide for himself. So even his family, if they were to provide these things, what they would have to do is they'd have to set them in a designated spot, and then they would have to back away before the leper could come and retrieve them. It was a horrible life of loneliness and isolation and separation. But I want you to remember something. Jesus' fame had spread. We saw this a week or two ago. In Mark chapter 1, verse 28, it says that Jesus' fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. As people heard more about this healer, this miracle worker, ears were listening. Eager ears were listening. And so this man must have heard about Jesus. And so I suspect that this man who had lived with no hope, with absolutely no hope for a number of years, I suspect that suddenly there was a glimmer, a little bit of hope. And maybe the more he thought about it, the more he heard about Jesus, that hope began to grow within him. Finally, that hope was to such a place that he did something that was, well, unthinkable. The leper was audacious in his faith. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. Follow along just as I read that verse, please. Verse 40, and a leper came to him, to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Wait, did I just read that verse properly? Let me look at that again. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him. Lepers didn't come up to people. Lepers certainly did not get close enough that they could kneel before anyone. Lepers stood at a distance. And if anyone even began to approach them, they would have to holler out, unclean, unclean, because they needed to protect Other people, everyone, had to stay away from lepers. Lepers knew that, and lepers had to stay away from them. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And this man was desperate. And so throwing caution and protocol and regulations and rules to the wind, he boldly and audaciously came to Jesus because he had faith that Jesus could heal him. He had faith that Jesus could make him clean from that dreaded disease that had ruined his life. But I I know this, his audacious approach, we read it and we can marvel at that, but it would have terrified, it would have startled, it would have even offended anyone else who was there by Jesus. Because again, Lepers did not approach people. They stayed away from them. Everyone, I suspect, was offended by what this man did in coming to Jesus. Everyone, except for one. You see, Jesus was audacious in his compassion. Look at verse 41. Moved with pity, 
he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now, the NIV translates pity as indignant. Uh, That's a a viable translation of the word there, and there's some uh, debate on that. Personally, I think from the context here that I think that pity or compassion, which the New American uses, I think that that's a better choice. I want you to try to picture it with me here. All who were witnesses to that incredible event taking place before their eyes would have not been thinking, oh, that is so sweet. They would not have been thinking, wow, this is great. They would have been thinking, oh, no way. There's no way that this is going on. And in fact, I even picture some of the disciples, you know how they were kind of bold and not always the smartest. I picture them like, Jesus, no! Because you know how you see these commercials sometimes where they show things happening in slow motion? And it's like, I picture them as they see Jesus reaching his hand out to this man that they're like, Jesus, no! Don't touch him! Don't, Don't you know who he is? Don't you know what this means? If you touch him, you will be unclean just like he is. Jesus, if you touch him, maybe even worse than being unclean is you might even catch it. So here, quick, get some hand sanitizer, give it to Jesus. In fact, here, everybody who's got some, pass as much as we can, because Jesus, you need to make sure that you don't catch this disease. And Jesus, if you catch it, you might pass it to us. So please, no, don't touch him. But of course... Jesus knew what was happening, and he knew what the law said, that he was not to touch a leper. But here's the amazing, the beautiful thing about it. Jesus knew that his power to heal was greater than leprosy's power to contaminate. And so just like the leper, Jesus did something that was unthinkable. He reached out. And he touched him. We read that, and we move along. But he touched a leper. You know, I I wrestle with this. I was thinking through the week, why did Jesus do that? Jesus did not have to touch him to heal him. Jesus could have simply spoken that you are clean, and the man would have been clean. So why did Jesus against everything that was written in the law, against all the protocol, against all of the the safety measures, why did Jesus reach out and touch him? I think partly to show his authority and power to everyone who was around him. But I think he primarily, this is my view, I think he primarily did it for the the man who had leprosy. Because how many years... Had it been since he had last been touched, uh, touched by anyone? How long had it been since he felt the gentle, comforting, compassionate pressure of another person's hand against him? How long? We, We have no idea. But I know it would have been startling for all who saw it, but for this man. Can you imagine someone who had never been touched for years? Finally, he comes to this rabbi who he believed could heal, and this rabbi didn't just pronounce him clean. This rabbi reached out 
and touched him. And in touching him, Jesus made him clean. Verses 42 and through 45 And immediately, I love that, we talked about this a lot, that's one of Mark's favorite words, and immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus reaches out, and he touches him, and Jesus gave him two commands, just two things to do. Number one, he said, don't tell anyone. And then number two, he says, go to the priest and have your healing declared and validated by the priest. And you have to understand that to be fully accepted into society after being a a leper, he would have had to have done that. Only the priest could kind of give him, if we want to call it, like a document of cleansing. But here's the thing. In his excitement and exuberance over his miraculous healing, he did not obey the first command, which Jesus gave him. Don't tell anyone. Now, we we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. The the messianic secret is what it's called. The messianic secret, that was Jesus' refusal to let others proclaim who he was or what he had done. Now, on this occasion, it's very pragmatic, Uh, Very clear why Jesus said it to him, because Jesus knew that big crowds would would make it impossible for Jesus then to enter into the town, whatever town he might have been near. Uh, So Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Unfortunately, the man did, and the disobedience caused the very problem that Jesus had known it would, and it greatly limited Jesus' travels. Should the guy have told No, Jesus made it very clear, don't. I think we can understand why he did, but still he disobeyed. And because of that, it limited what Jesus could do. That's the first example of audacious faith. Let's look at example number two, and that is where the paralyzed became whole. (laughs) Most of you will never fully appreciate the angst that I've experienced this past week in my studies. I I tell you, it is almost agonizing because each one of these events, there's so many things in it that we could dig a little deeper and bring out, and I so want to do all of that, but I also felt like these went together, and so I needed to, to, to keep them together and do them in one sermon. All that to say is, I hope you guys feel really sorry for me because it's been brutal trying to know where to what to talk about, what not to. But the reality is this. This is so cool. That first event was amazing. This one is perhaps even more amazing. Because in this one, the, the friends were audacious in helping their friend. Look at chapter 2. Let me read the first four verses and have you follow along. And when he, that's Jesus, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, (laughs) they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now again, we are introduced to a man who I suspect had been void of hope. He was unable to even move around or to help himself 
And added to that, this is something you and I maybe not don't think about a lot, but the stigma of being handicapped in that culture was very real and even traumatic because most Jews erroneously believed that afflictions and diseases were always the direct results of someone's sin. Because do you remember the disciples in John chapter 9? They saw a blind man and, and they, said, they said to Jesus, Rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That was the pervading philosophy in those days. If you saw someone who was sick, someone who was paralyzed, wow, he must have sinned. He deserved it is basically what it comes down to. So there's this terrible stigma upon people who were lame or diseased or paralyzed. So this man, his life must have been so difficult. But now, this healer, whose reputation had been growing and spreading, he had returned now to Capernaum. So this man, with his four friends carrying him on a stretcher, they went to the home where Jesus was preaching. It doesn't tell us what house or what home. A lot of, a lot of commentators suspect it was probably Peter's, because remember, that's where they had stayed before. So we, we just don't know. But, but think of the excitement, the, the anticipation, uh, the hope growing within this man every step that his friends took as they got closer and closer to the house where they knew that Jesus was at. But, oh, no, they get there and the house is packed full. It wasn't standing room only. It was no room. Can you imagine the disappointment, the frustration, the snatching away of that hope that had been probably growing within this man as his friends carried him to the home? And they found out it was packed full. They couldn't even bring him in to see Jesus. I hate to admit this. I don't, I don't usually cover up my faults, and so I won't do it now. But I hate to admit this. If I had been one of the friends, or especially if I had been the, the man who was paralyzed, <laughs> when I got there and the house was packed, you couldn't get in there, I would have been like, I told you guys we needed to leave earlier, but oh no, oh no, you guys had to delay, right? <laughs> As if that ever really helped make a situation better. I know, I know. Don't hate me for that. I'm just being honest. And don't check with Tammy. Because she could verify that would, be, that would be what I would be like. I told you. But regard, regardless of that, to come there, to find the house so full that they could not even see Jesus who was inside, to bring their friend there, it's amazing what they came up with. Their creativity and their refusal to be denied, I think it's just startling. It is absolutely incredible. I mean, who would have ever thought of, well, we can't get into the house. Here's a thought. Let's take off part of the roof and let him down within it. <laughs> so this, this is a, re, a reconstruction of, of what a roof, first century roof might have looked like. It's, think of a roof, not, not the way we have ours with the slanted roof that, you, could, you know, they even use for architectural purposes to show the house off and all that. Roofs were more flat. And they were like a deck, like you and I maybe have decks off our house. That's what a roof was like. So what would they would do is they'd take these wood poles or branches and they would lay them across large um, 
support beams so and building kind of a structure like with joists with those and then what they would do is they would cover those wood beam or poles they would cover them with a matting that they had made from reeds and branches and they would take wet clay and they would mix it together which would harden there and then they had basically this platform that you could walk on and the the roofs were accessible not from inside they were accessible from an outside stairwell that you would go up now <clears throat> it just sounds crazy to us that they would cut a hole into a roof and let the man down and it was unique but i will say this roofs would often have to be resurfaced redone especially in the fall before the winter rains would come. And so, so digging into someone's roof, it would not be nearly as cataclysmic as it would be for us if someone came to our house and started digging and cutting into our roof. But nevertheless, it still had to be shocking. Think about the people underneath there. Think about the homeowner. <laughs> I don't know if my insurance is going to cover this. Right? But these men, they dug into the roof, they dug through the roof because the people were so tightly packed in there that they could not enter the house and then they lowered the man down right in front of Jesus. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be been one of the ones right there by Jesus. Like, what in the world is happening? And even though there might not have been much room in the house, somehow they made room. Everybody back up, back up, because I don't want this bed to come down on top of me. It is amazing here what happened. Because not only were the friends audacious, Jesus was audacious in forgiving and healing. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, I'll just say this. I wasn't really expecting that. I might... Might hope for maybe be healed. Maybe, hey, go ahead. Yep, yep. You got some feeling back in your legs. Why don't you stand up? Give it a try. See how you're doing. I would expect maybe something like that. But instead, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. But I want you to notice what prompted Jesus' statement in the first place. It says when he saw their faith. That's plural. You see that there in the text. Now, commentators love to debate this. And, and who, who's the there? Whose faith is he referring to? I think, obviously, he's referring to the faith of the four friends who brought the man there and lowered him down into the house. But I don't think it was just the four men. I think it was also the faith of the paralytic. Because I don't know of anywhere in Scripture where the forgiveness of sins occurs apart from personal faith and trust in God. I think that Jesus knew the man's heart. And so he pronounced his sins to be forgiven. He saw their faith, all five of them. And he pronounced his sins to be forgiven, and thereby what Jesus did is made him spiritually clean. Just as he had cleaned the, the leper physically, now he cleans the paralytic spiritually. Jesus, you see, he was addressing the man's greatest need first which was to be forgiven. That was more important than the need to be healed and able to walk. Let's keep reading uh, verse 6. Now, 
some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here's the thing. They weren't wrong. They were very correct. No one could forgive sins except for God. Their mistake was in not recognizing that the one who stood before them was God. That's where they messed up. There was no blasphemy going on here. Jesus had every right and all of the authority needed to forgive this man's sins, which is what he did. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 8 and following. And immediately, there again we see that. Mark uses that word so often. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, (laughs) Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He then said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Okay, so I need you to help me out. We're going to vote. Full participation. Okay, all you got to do is raise your hand. (coughs) Jesus asked the question, which is easier? So who thinks it's easier to say your sins are forgiven? Okay, this is full participation. Thank you for, okay, we're just slow getting it. All right. Can I see the hands again? Okay, okay, good. A good part of you, maybe close to half. Who thinks it's easier to say, um, take your bed up and walk? Okay, good. You guys did well. Kind of half and half there. So well done on that. So the correct answer is this. Yeah, I have no idea. So I just, <laughs> you're on your own. I don't, really, I don't really know what it is. But I do find it very interesting and I will say maybe just a little bit confusing, that Jesus said, so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins, and then he turns to the paralytic and says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. It's like, wait, what? So that you know it's easier for me to forgive sins, I'm I'm going to say, rise and take up your bed. It would seem that to show his power to forgive sins, that would mean that Jesus would then have just simply repeated what he said in verse 5. Son, your sins are forgiven. If I had to vote, and I'm kind of not certain again on this, you guys are brave enough to vote, I kind of think that maybe saying forgiving of sins is a bigger deal and probably harder because, again, it can only be done by God, and and that at the price of Jesus' death on the cross. But I think that this thing, it can seem kind of confusing because Jesus says, so that you will know this, and then he says the other choice. I think the ESV Study Bible does a really good job kind of helping explain the situation. It says, the logic here is that since Jesus can do the visible miracle, heal the paralytic, this is evidence that he also has the power to do the invisible miracle which is to forgive sins. To simply say that the man's sins were forgiven. If Jesus just said, your sins are forgiven, well, that didn't really prove to anyone around them that that was the case. But by healing him physically, it showed that Jesus did indeed have the power and the authority to do exactly what he said he was going to do. 
And so it shows his authority to forgive sins. And the result, well, look at verse 12 with me. And he rose and immediately, we see that word again, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. (laughs) I love this. Instant obedience and the man's part resulted in the instant praise and the glorification of Jesus before the people that day. Now, as I said, there's so many things in both of these stories we could talk more about, but as I reflect on these two stories, I have to just tell you, I envy the audacious faith of the leper and the paralytic and the four friends. And I pray, oh, I pray so much that God will help you and he will help me to become more audacious in our faith, more bold in approaching him, more uninhibited in asking him to do incredible things, more courageous in coming and asking him, not timidly, not mildly, not just maybe hinting and beating around the bush, but coming directly. I want that audacious faith where we are so bold that we can come before God and ask anything of him, knowing that if it's it's if it's his will, he will indeed do I want that for me. I want that for you. But as I studied this passage, it wasn't just the challenge, the conviction of having audacious faith. Because what I really marvel at is Jesus. You see, what he did for those two hopeless and helpless men is exactly what he does for you and I on a spiritual level. Because of our sin, we should have no hope of ever being made clean, no hope of spiritual healing, no hope of ever having our sins forgiven. And there is absolutely nothing that we can do to help ourselves out of that desperate, that most desperate situation. Just like the leper, just like the paralytic, all we can do, all we can do is just simply come to Jesus. And place our faith in him. But the wonderful thing, the amazing thing, the incredible thing, the miraculous thing, and I would say the eternal thing is this. That is enough. That's all we can do is come to Jesus, but that is enough because don't you understand, and I think you do, Jesus is enough. Forgiveness is our, of our sin. That is our greatest need. Because without forgiveness of sins, we stand condemned to eternity in hell, separated from God and his love. But God's greatest gift to us overcomes our greatest need. His greatest gift is the forgiveness of our sins through the sacrificial death of Jesus. And so when we helplessly come to Jesus and we have nothing to do to help ourselves, nothing to offer to him except coming to him and having faith in him, putting our trust in him, when we come to him in that capacity, he says to us, be clean. He says, your sins are forgiven. We have nothing to 
to even take any credit for. We have done nothing to deserve that. We've done nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to earn it. But that's okay because Jesus did everything for us. All that he did is so that you and I can have our sins forgiven and we can be made new and we can therefore know that we are children of God and we'll spend eternity with him. When I read these stories, I'm amazed at the power, the authority, the compassion of Jesus, but I'm even more amazed at the fact that they really show, in a physical way, they show exactly what happens to us spiritually when we come to Jesus. And just something, Jesus, if you will, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus says, I will. And he does it. So whether you have audacious faith or whether you just have simple faith, I don't think that's the, the real story, the real issue from these stories. I think the key is this, Jesus. If you are saved, and I know most of you are, I say to you, celebrate your Savior. Celebrate what he has done for you. Celebrate the new life that you have because of Jesus. But if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, if you have not yet asked him to save you from your sins, I beg of you, accept his free gift of salvation. (laughs) If I can borrow from Mark, accept his free gift of salvation immediately. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't put it off. Don't delay in any way, shape, or form. Because as we sang about earlier, the reality is this. Salvation is found in Christ alone. And that's enough. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being such a great Savior. Thank you for being perfect. Thank you for being powerful. Thank you for being loving. Thank you for making a way of salvation possible for each of us. And I pray for all of us who have accepted you as Lord and Savior that we would indeed celebrate and be so eternally thankful for what you have done. And God, if there's anyone here who has not, not yet come to you and asked you to save them and to forgive them and to make them clean, Would you help them to do that this morning and help them to understand it's not about how much any of us know. It's not about how good or bad we are. It's all about Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen.